Well, hello, everyone. Hey, it's great to be together. And I am super, super excited to continue on in our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Exodus. Today, we're going to be starting um, Exodus chapter 19. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Um, It doesn't matter what version it is. It can be the King James Version. We love the Word of God. We love that version of the Bible. It can be your NIV, your ESV. It can be the Message Bible. It doesn't matter. And maybe you have your Bible on your device. Maybe it's on your your cell phone or on your computer. Grab that. It doesn't matter. Personally, I like to teach God's Word through my computer. And I'll be honest, I like the computer because I can make that font real big. (laughs) You see, my eyes, they aren't as young as they used to be. And I like to be able to connect with people. I like when there's people here in the sanctuary to look out and, and see your face and connect with you. And although I'm just talking to a camera right now, I want to be able to look at the camera. Um, when I wear reading glasses, I'm only seeing a couple feet up front of my nose. But I want to be able to connect with you, even though you're at your home and I'm here at the church. You know, I've been thankful for the technology that we have to, to have the electronic Word of God spread throughout the world. I'm excited for technology. I'm grateful. We're trying to always be innovative here at Calvary Chapel. As you see, we've changed the set around so that... Um, It's a little more relaxed and comfortable for you, a little different than what you're used to. And so we're thankful that you've invited us into your home. I'm thankful we have this technology to be able to do that. So grab your Bible. I just wish one of you would invent the online haircut. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because my hair is driving me crazy right now. Um, Like 10, I was probably 10 days late for getting a haircut when the whole shelter in place thing uh, was put into place. And now it's been six weeks And the person who cuts my hair, their shop has been shut down. Now, listen, if they don't open it up pretty soon, I'm going to start to look like the guy that I was before I I became to know the Lord. So this is what you get. Let's go ahead and jump into the word of God. We've already prayed for our time um, before we started. So let's open our Bibles to Exodus 19. And I think before we uh, jump into the text, I do think I should summarize a little bit where we've been and where we're headed. Now, depending on who you talk to or whatever outline you've discovered online or whatever, um, all the books of the Bible can basically be broken up into several different sections. The book of Exodus, I like to break it up into four sections. The first section that we covered is just simply the Exodus from Egypt, and that includes their time of slavery and all the things that happened as they left Egypt. Section number two, the people were tested in the wilderness. Section number three, the covenant at Mount Sinai, and that's where we, we begin tonight, um, chapter 19, and that'll go through chapter 24. And then there'll be that last section, the worship of the Lord. Now, before we um, get into verse 1 of chapter 19, I think there is a word that we really need to be familiar with, and that is the word covenant. This word's going to come up a lot over the next uh, several chapters. Now, if you Google the word covenant to get a definition, you'll find it's the, it means agreement and contract, and all those are correct. But theologically, I think the best definition that suits the book of Exodus is this, an agreement that governs a relationship. That's really what it is. It's an agreement that governs a relationship. And essentially, there are two covenants that you find. There's the covenant that God gave to Abraham, and there's the one given to the children of God. Covenant number one, the covenant to Abraham, that's unconditional. 
God just approached Abraham and said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it or to possess it, depending on the version Bible that you have. He didn't have to do anything. He was just in the, the perfect family line. That's what happens in an inheritance. You didn't earn it. It was just given to you. Covenant number two is the Mosaic covenant. This covenant is conditional. The land that they occupy, unconditional, but how long they will be there and the potential blessings that they will receive there is conditional. So let's go ahead and jump into the text with the, that definition defined. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. Let's read together. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now let's stop right here. I do want to comment on a couple things here we find in these first two verses. We really have come full circle now with Moses, right? Because if you remember, this is where it all began with Moses. This is the place, the location of Moses' calling where God gave him his purpose for living. God spoke to him through the burning bush, one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. And before that, he really didn't have a direction or a purpose. You find that he was tending the flocks of his father-in-law. And I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, Moses, it's been 40 years. Where are your flocks? Well, what have you been doing all this time? Yes, he had a wife. And yes, he has children. And those things are awesome. But his purpose wasn't clearly defined he comes to Mount Sinai where it all began. And Mount Sinai, we got to understand, is really one of the most sacred locations in all of Israel's history. You think about all the things that happened there. In fact, for me, if there was only one place that I could visit in my lifetime, if I only could choose one place, I think I would choose Mount Sinai because of all the amazing things that happened there. You think about this burning bush that happened there. But also God, as we're going to see, uh, makes his covenant with his people Israel. Elijah, here's the word of God. Here's the voice of God in a whisper here on Mount Sinai. It's here that uh, the people receive the Ten Commandments and the other laws that govern right living. Many people believe that Paul may have done some interesting things here before the beginning of his ministry. But it's here that they learn the potential blessings of obedience. And unfortunately, the tragic consequences of disobedience. And I love in verse 1 how it gives us a great time reference. It says that in the third month, on the very day they arrive here. So it's telling us that it's been three months out since they left Egypt. So a great time reference there. Let's go ahead and read on into verse 3. And the word says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you, sh you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now I want to break down these four verses into smaller bite-sized chunks, if you will, because really there really is a lot here. For example, in verse 3, it says that Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, 
Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. Now, I think I missed this the first few times that I read through this chapter. I missed how God uses this twofold title to address the people of God. On one hand, he says, the house of Jacob. On the other hand, he says, tell the sons of Israel. He's not talking to two different people groups. He's talking to one people group, but he begins by saying, say to the house of Jacob. And I believe God is trying to, to um, convey and, and, and use this phrasing as a reminder of their humble beginnings. He's, it's like God is saying, remember when you were just a few people. When you were just the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, and tell the sons of Israel, which really serves as a statement as to what they have now become, a nation of people. So on one hand, humble beginnings, a few people, sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now a nation of people. I think God is just simply showing the world. He's showing them and he's showing us that in him, we are all bound for much greater things than we could ever imagine when we are in our Lord. You think about King David. He went from a shepherd boy, was never even invited to the party, to the giant slayer and maybe the greatest king in the history of Israel. You think about Saul, who persecuted the church of God and then met the Lord Jesus Christ and later on went on to do some of the most amazing things, called people unto the Lord and writes, a good part of the New Testament. The apostles, no different. They go from uh, cowards to martyrs. Maybe your own life. You think about your life, what you were before you became a Christian and how God has used you powerfully and you've become something greater than you could have ever imagined. I think about the whole Calvary Chapel movement and how some of the largest and most influential churches in all the world, it's a worldwide movement, their humble beginnings as they were uh, taught the word of God through Pastor Chuck and his wife, Kate. So amazing uh, verse right here. Let's go on into verse four. God says in verse four, he says, you yourself has seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I, I so love this verse. This verse to me is so intimate. It just, it just shows the heart of God, his caring nature. It's hard for me to believe that there could ever be any controversy about the, this verse or any debate, and yet there has been. Some people would argue, well, I'm not sure about that verse because eagles, they don't carry their fledglings on their wings. Look, that's not the point. When he says, how I bore you on eagles' wings, obviously it wasn't literal. He's not talking about in the literal sense, but it does paint a great picture of how God carried them out of Egypt, how it talks about their flight away from Pharaoh. God is just saying, look, you were there. You saw it with your own eyes. You saw the miracles. You saw my deliverance. You saw how I carried you. You couldn't have done it on your own or you would have 400 years earlier. God is just saying, look, I love you so much. What can I compare it to? This verse is clearly a simile as it compares God's care for Israel to an eagle's care for its young. Now, what's so interesting and even funny to me is that this verse is going to directly connect with Revelation chapter 12, which just so happens to be the chapter that Pastor Sean will be teaching on Sunday. Let's go ahead and turn there. Revelation chapter 12, specifically in verse 14. 
And I want to turn there not so I can teach from it. I'm going to leave that to the expert. Sean's doing an amazing job with the book of Revelation. But I want to read it because I want to use this as an example of how we should always try to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And this verse will directly connect with Revelation 12, verse 14. Let's go ahead and read it together. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time in times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now, this verse says that this woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Now, obviously, the woman didn't sprout wings all of a sudden and then go flying off into the wilderness to her place where she would be nourished by mama bird. That's not the point. That's not what it's saying. Again, this is a simile comparing an eagle's care for its young to God's care for his people, in this case, a woman. It paints a great picture of this woman's flight, in this case, from Satan. Remember, Pharaoh is a form of Satan. So it's just a beautiful way of using the Bible to interpret the Bible. Now let's go back to chapter 19 of Exodus and begin again in verse 5. And the word says this, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. We get a very interesting if-then statement here. Like, if you do this, then this will be the result. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among my peoples. Right here, God is just establishing the terms by which he will be their God and they will be his people. It's conditional. Now, I want to be really, really clear right here. That is not to say that God won't take back a penitent Israel because the Lord is always looking for a heart to turn toward, toward him. Maybe you have once had a great relationship with the Lord and something happened and maybe a person died and there was a time when you just didn't understand your faith and you found yourself walking away from the Lord instead of toward him or you've turned your back and you've decided to drift away. And then during that time you've been attacked spiritually and you've been paralyzed in times with fear and guilt and shame well let me tell you the lord is always looking for you to return to him the book of isaiah teaches that god will always be prepared to bring israel back and god is always looking for a heart that would turn toward him maybe that's you today but even with all that that doesn't contradict god's admonition here now, I recognize clearly that some people may find this notion of being loved conditionally upsetting and therefore unacceptable. I understand that, but I would say this to you, if that's you. If you take an honest, truthful look at Scripture, you will see that this principle is being played out over and over again throughout the Bible. In fact, in Exodus 32, and we're going to get to those chapters in future weeks, but in Exodus 32, when the people break God's covenant and they begin to worship a golden calf, God's first instinct is to totally destroy the people and start over and build a new nation with Moses with a completely different people group. God's ways are always the best ways. 
There are certain things, though, that God requires of us. Listen to this verse. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That verse is from Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. God wants us to be a people, it says, to walk with him in humility. That means that is the man who says to him or the woman who says to him, Lord, I have sinned and I need your help to stop. That's the person who says, I have tried to do it my way and it doesn't work. Without you, God, I am lost. That is the person who says, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the person that says, Lord, I am a sinner and I am in desperate need of your grace and your mercy and your love. God wants us to be a people of kindness and justice, it says. Your ways are always the right ways, God. Bottom line, we are just called to live God-centered lives and moral lives. And I love here how God slips in this last little bit at the end there at verse 5 where he says, for all the earth is mine. Now, if you've ever been like me and you've ever wondered, like, why did God choose the Jews? Out of all the people groups living at that time, why did he choose the Jews to do his will? Well, I think we find the answer right here for all the earth is mine. It's just that simple. L let me say it this way. The world belongs to God. Therefore, he can do whatever he wants with it. <laughs> Look, the truth is we don't know why God chose Abraham to be the father of a nation of people. We don't know why the Jews were given this special burden of acting as his emissary to humanity. We don't really know why, but it is God's world and God can do whatever he wants with it. The, the real question for me is this. Why does God choose any of us given our imperfect nature and our sinful nature of all of us? We see that God has vision. In verse 6 it says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, he says, that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Here God tells the people what they will become. And it's so interesting that later on in the New Testament, you find the Apostle Peter borrowing the imagery of this exact verse, Exodus 19, verse 6, when he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Just listen. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you might, may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He calls the church today a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. Why? It tells us so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of this darkness into this marvelous light. Just like Israel, the church has been chosen to spread the knowledge of God, the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel message to all of humanity. God is always looking for people that will be faithful with His message. God wants someone, as it says, to proclaim His excellencies, to spread the knowledge of Him. So incredible. In verse 7 we read on, so Moses came 
and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, here, let's do it together. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. Let's do it again. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Now, let's stop right there. Of course, God already knew what the people had said to Moses, right? God's all-knowing. God is everywhere. And they already knew, but given the grumbling and the complaints that Moses had to endure over the past three months, I, I bet it was so comforting for Moses to finally approach God and be like, God, guess what? You won't believe what the people said when I told them your words. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They're going to do it. How comforting it must have been to finally bring good news to God after everything that they had grumbled against. And I think in many ways, God was just maybe giving Moses that feel good about yourself day, right? Like we all need that sometimes when things have just been going tough. We need that victory. But God knows the hearts of men. God knew that six weeks later, they would literally be offering up a sacrifice to a golden calf that they fashioned on this very site. And what makes it worse, the cherry on top is that they would be led by his brother Aaron. Aaron would be the one who says, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. He was like, what? Didn't we just read how God told them, you were there, you saw the miracles, you saw my deliverance, you saw how I bore you out on eagle's wings. And then right here in just such a short time, Aaron's saying, this is your God. God loves Moses. God knew, and yet God wanted to build him up. I think for me, even though God knows the evil of our hearts, this is a powerful statement to the grace of God that even knowing what God knew ahead of time, he is still ready to give the people a fresh start. And that's what we read next in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, right here, it's talking about changing clothes and washing clothes here in verses 10 and 11. And later on down a little bit more in verses 14 and 15. But let me say this. In today's society, we are accustomed to having soap and water at the ready. I mean, for us, we just turn on the faucet. We just pump the well and we have soap. We have water. We, we have washing machines where we just throw our dirty clothes in and they come out perfect. They come out clean every time. We have closets to put our clothes in. We have Chester drawers to stuff full of our clothes. We have many, many pairs of shoes. Right, ladies? We have lots of things, but they did not have these things. They didn't even take baths or change their clothes every day. They didn't have tons of stuff to change into like we do today. That's why in the Bible, bathing, changing of your clothes often marked a new beginning. 
It, it kind of symbolizes a fresh start. We see this played out when God restored Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. They sinned and they had to leave the garden. But God gives them a fresh start as he dresses them with animal skins and gives them new clothes back in Genesis 3.21. But even as the people are starting new, starting fresh, there are still limits of, as to what they can do. And we read that beginning in verse 12. It says, you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And that's just referring to relations with your wife. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. So all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, most spoke with God and answered him, with thunder. This is, this is cool right here. This must have been a very scary sight to behold. Uh, it talks about smoke and fire and flashes of lightning and peals of thunder getting louder and louder and the trumpet starts to blast and it starts to get louder and louder. All the while the earth is shaking. You know, it starts to sound a lot like like, like Revelation 10 and 11, what we've just been studying over the past couple weeks. Look, here God is making his grand entrance. God knows how to make an entrance like nobody else right here. He makes an announcement of his coming. This is a day that the people were never to forget, nor would they ever be able to forget. And so this section here really begins to speak about the distance between God and the people of God. And I know that can be hard for us to understand today in the year 2020 because the New Testament teaches us to draw near to the Lord. Over and over, we are taught to draw near to God. But for them, staying away from Mount Sinai was a matter of life and death. The presence of God had sanctified the mountain. They could actually die being close to God. So Moses, it says, puts up barriers to keep the people at a distance. It says he posts guards and he gives them authority to kill you if you touch the border even. Kill the animals if anyone goes through the border. Like I said, man or beast, it doesn't matter. Let's say you have a goat and he gets out of his pen and he goes flying to the border. Bam, he's dead. And the most morbid part is that it says that no one is to touch the dead body. Like, what do you just... Let him sit there and lie there and rot in the sun. In a dramatic way, God is teaching the people the distance between a holy God and sinful man and woman. There's a huge gap there. The difference between a holy God and sinful man. It was drilled into them 
over and over again. In fact, the Old Testament structure of worship emphasized man's sinfulness and God's holiness over and over again. You think about the tabernacle, the place where they worshiped. First of all, the tabernacle, there was a fence around the tabernacle. Stay away. There was a veil that separated the court from the Holy of Holies. Stay out. Only the priest could minister in the tabernacle. And even only once a year, the high priest could even go into the Holy of Holies. The emphasis was always keep your distance. You cannot get close to God. The consequences of disobeying God were very severe. The death penalty, the threat of it, it communicates the severity of sin. It was a lesson God was trying to teach them all throughout the years. I am just so incredibly thankful that the church is not under the covenant of law. So should you be. The Bible says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4 Verse 16, what a contrast between the Old Testament structure of worship and what we enjoy today. The New Testament emphasizes the nearness of God. I'm going to read you a few uh, scriptures that I want you just to reference. For the Son of God became flesh and came to dwell on earth. John chapter 1, verse 14. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. And I think the best passage for me that sums up what we have in Christ is this passage in Hebrews 12, verse 18. And I love the way the Bible, the message, uh, words it. Listen to what it says. Hebrews 12, verse 18. It says, unlike your ancestors, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. All that volcanic blaze and earth-shaking rumble to hear God speak. The earth-splitting words, the soul-shaking message terrified them, and they begged him to stop. When they heard the words, if an animal touches the mountain, it's as good as dead. They were all afraid to move. Even Moses was terrified. No, that's not your experience at all. You've come to Mount Zion, a city where the living God resides, the invisible Jerusalem, is populated by throngs of festive angels and Christian citizens. It is the city where God is the judge, with judgments that make us just. You've come to Jesus, who presents us with a new covenant, a fresh charter from God. He is the mediator of this covenant. The murder of Jesus, unlike Abel's, a homicide that cried out for vengeance, became a proclamation of grace. That is so powerful. And we should be so grateful that we don't live under the covenant of law. In verse 20, it says that the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, quote, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. 
So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now stop right here because this section makes me laugh. Um, Right here, it reminds me of like a child arguing with their father, a parent. It makes me laugh here because in verses 20 through 22, it says that God calls Moses up on the mountain only to tell him to turn around and go back down the mountain and warn the people not to come back up the mountain. The very thing he already told them to do before. And then in verse 23, Moses is like, but God, I already told them that. He's like, 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 I know, I know, I know. Like the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai for you warned us saying set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. He's like, I know, I already told them that. And then God turns to him and goes, Moses, do it again. It reminds me of when we argue with the child, like, hey, did you clean your room? Yeah, I did it. You go look at it and you're like, do it again. Did you brush your teeth? Yeah, let me look at those things. Do it again. Did you do your homework? I won't go there. Do it again. It, it so reminds me of that. Now, why? Like, I understand Moses' perspective. Like, God, I'm sick of coming up this mountain. This is like my third time. But why? Why does God say, do it again? I find that God in my life has always been so faithful to warn me before I go out and do something stupid. And sometimes God has to tell me more than once. Sometimes God has to tell me again and again. The truth is we are a stiff-necked, hard-headed, stubborn people. And oftentimes we act more like children than we do and than adults. I think the last thing you ever want to hear God say to you is, this is the last time I'm going to tell you. Like you've probably heard that from a parent in your life. But I think about the great apostle Paul. Paul himself wrote this. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. So even for the great apostle Paul, He knows the good he wants to do, but we can't always do it. We don't always do it. God knows our hearts. And God says, I got to warn him again. I got to remind him again. And if Paul would write that, how much more will that be with me? How much more will that be with you? God cares so much that he warns us again and again. And so in conclusion, let me just say a few things. The God of creation we find here in chapter 19, was about to make a covenant, an agreement that would govern a relationship with the people. And Jesus Christ in our life has made a covenant with us, an agreement that governs our relationship with him. The people in the story here, they witnessing the, witness the storms, the, the thunder, the lightning, the earthquakes, And it tells them, keep your distance. It impressed upon their hearts that God is holy and apart from him, you are nothing. But in Jesus Christ, it's totally the opposite. I desire all would come to me. God wants to pull us in. He wants us a repentant heart to draw, be, be drawn back to him. We don't have to go through the storms. Look, we have enough bad weather in Cheyenne here already. We have the wind and we have all these things that God says, come unto me. They were called to be a sanctified people, unlike the nations around them, but only if they obeyed God. And if they did, they would truly enjoy the privileges of being, as it says, a holy priesthood uh, or a royal priesthood, a holy nation and God's treasured people. 
We too have been called out. We too have been called to be a sanctified people, unlike the nations and the people around us. Listen, God has given us so much. I want to end with this passage for thought. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. You've been entrusted with the knowledge of God, with the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. You've been entrusted with the word of God. You understand his word and how powerful it is. We have all been given so very much and we all have different talents and different spiritual giftings that the Lord has given us. And I do believe that one day we will be asked to account for what we have done with those talents and those gifts. And so during this time of isolation, during our, our time in the wilderness, this place where we find ourselves right now, I will be praying that all of us learn the lessons that God is trying to teach us. And we must remember that we are to walk with our God in humility. One of my favorite characters in the Bible was Enoch. And it says in the Bible that at 65, he has a son named Methuselah. And it's right after that time, he begins to walk earnestly with his God. For the next 300 years, Enoch passionately, as if he knew something was on the horizon, starts to spread the knowledge of God to the people. He starts to warn the people about an impending doom. He walks with God in humility. Most interesting is that at the end of Methuselah's life, the very year of his death, God tells his grandson Noah to shut the doors on the ark. I don't know what's on the horizon of your life. I feel like something big is on the horizon now for all of us, for this world. And I want to remind us that in Jesus Christ, we have a covenant relationship and he has given us so much, so much knowledge so much understanding of who he is. We have his word and we are to walk humbly with God and spread that word. Like I said, I don't know what's in store for all of us, but I want us to learn the lessons and be able to spread the knowledge of God as far and wide as we can in the times that we have left on this earth. We love you and I thank you for inviting us into your home. Let's go ahead and close and pray. Amen. Our God and Father, I am so thankful for your word. Father, I'm thankful that you allow us to understand it and you allow us to pray. You've given us this gift of communication. I'm so thankful, Lord, that we today aren't under the covenant of law, but instead we are in a covenant relationship that allows us to draw near to you and to jump into your lap for hugs of love and encouragement. Father, would you be with each and every one of us today that we'd be able to go out and spread the knowledge of you that we would understand we've been called by you and sanctified by you to be your treasured people. Thank you, Father, for this honor and for this pleasure. Help us to remember how much you have given us every single day and to spread the love and joy as we walk with you in humility. We do love you and thank you. In Jesus we pray, amen. Have a great day.